The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. We have some very dear friends that uh, just had some children, and um, my wife teaches at a school, so I find myself, we went into a, a five-year-old's basketball game yesterday. It just amazes me that people are that small, and they function like they do. It's just funny watching them do normal things, talk to other kids, play basketball, whatever it is. And um, most recently, though, my little brothers, I have two younger brothers that are twins, and they just turned 24. And so we were, um, uh, family got together, and we were just kind of reminiscing on uh, when they were younger. And it's amazing how true their character has stayed throughout their whole lives. So we were recalling stories when they were 10 or 11 years old, and they're literally the same people as they were then. They're just older. And so one instance was um, my two twin brothers are completely opposite. One is uh, an avid spender, and one is a very, we'll call them frugal. That's a nice word for them. And uh, we, we used to go to these basketball camps. Some of you may have gone to basketball camps growing up, and they have this little card that you can use to purchase food. You know, it's like Sour Patch Kids, 75 cents, or M&Ms after your basketball game, 50 cents. And so there was $15 on each card. And one of my brothers would go the whole week and only spend like $1.50. And so he'd have like the whole card left at the end. My other brother uh, spent all of his money in a day and a half, and then somehow he manipulated his friends to buy him food the rest of the week. And it's just funny, he's the same guy today at 24 <laughs> as, as he was then. And so, anyway, this morning we're going to open God's Word to uh, 1 Corinthians 10, and hopefully uh, we'll get to see a little bit about uh, where you and I come from, what our history in the faith is, and why we are the way we are. Um, one thing that I have seen as uh, I've studied this particular passage, is that God is a God of covenants. And so most recently, we see a covenant that God makes in 1 Corinthians 7 when we studied marriage. It's a covenant between a man and a woman. And so as we study the text today, uh, I believe at the end of our time together that we will have made a pretty strong case that God is not just a covenant maker, but he is a covenant keeper, and why that may have any implication on us. So before we get started, why don't I uh, pray for us, really more for myself and for your hearts, and then we can uh, dive right in. So pray with me. Christ, we are thankful this morning that it is the Lord's day, and that uh, we gather here as a local group of believers. We also know that there are other saints across the world that are gathering as well. And we bless their fellowship. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and bless our time together as well, that we would listen well, we would speak well, we would learn well, and that we would leave growing in faith, love, and good deeds with one another. And we ask you, for these things through Jesus. Amen. 
So uh, if you guys will turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, you may already be there. For some of you who are not used to uh, opening a Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verses. And so 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Uh, I'm going to stop right there. So uh, it's pretty important to understand what's going on. So Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a largely Gentile population. Well, what's odd about the way that he opens this chapter is at the very beginning he says, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers, and then he goes on to list, were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. So he's referencing the Israelites leaving Egypt in the Exodus, but Gentiles would not have had forefathers that were Jewish. And so what Paul's doing there is what we call uh, continuity. He's assuming that there's continuity between the Israelite fathers and the Gentile brothers in the Corinthian church. And it may not strike you as very important, um, and it didn't to me at first, but it is. So I think it's important before we go on any further in the text to kind of lay a foundation of what this Israelite group would have been under. And it was uh, uh, an old covenant. And so at its basic level, a covenant functions between two people. And we see that in marriage uh, between a husband and a wife. And we also see that in a covenant with one another. Uh, But most specifically here, God throughout the Old Testament made several covenants with different Old Testament saints. And so a covenant has a couple of characteristics. Number one, in this case, it's between God and humans. It's called a divine human covenant. The second characteristics of a covenant is that there are mutual obligations, meaning God has his end of the bargain and the people, so the Israelites, had their end of the bargain. The third aspect of the covenant is that there were blessings received if you fulfilled your end of the covenant. And on the contrary, there were curses received if you broke the covenant. So the old covenant that the Israelites would have been under in its most basic form, so a 30,000-foot level, would be seen on Mount Sinai. Some of you may be familiar with that story when Moses under his leadership, takes a Jewish people out of a heathen pagan land, Egypt, leads them into the wilderness and saves them from the destruction and slavery, which is a pretty accurate picture of what God does to us when he comes and saves us. So Moses, through the ten plagues and his leadership, takes them out into the wilderness. Well, on Mount Sinai... God comes down and writes on a tablet with his fingers the Ten Commandments. Because what we have to understand is there was no nation of Israel prior to this. There was Egyptians and there were slaves. And so this is a whole new ball game for these people. They are a new people that God pulls out specifically for purposes that we're about to see. And so the Old Covenant law is demonstrated most basically through the Ten Commandments, and then God's instruction on everyday living for the Jewish people. 
And so God says in this covenant, he gives out five commands. He says, if you love me and obey me, I'll do the five following things. Number one is I will make you my treasured possession. Number two, you will be a people full of royal priests. Number three, you'll be a holy nation. Number four, I will protect you from your enemies. And number five, I will give you grace and I'll give you forgiveness. See, the old covenant has no meaning or value or promises covenantally to anyone other than the nation of Israel. So on the contrary, there's an old covenant. Well, we now live in the new covenant. So the new covenant is for the Jew and the Gentile. The new covenant which God has made with us is specifically for what Revelation paints as all people from all tribes, all tongues, and all nations. So the new covenant at its basic level is that Jesus Christ came down, fulfilled, and made superior the new covenant to the old covenant by completing the law, by living perfectly, by dying on the cross, and by raising himself from the dead. So the new covenant should paint a very real picture for us. And it, it didn't really strike me as I was studying these particular verses, but it should have. And so I'm going to read in words better than I can explain what the new covenant is for. And that's in Hebrews 8, verses 6, 7, and 13. So in Hebrews chapter 8, the writer says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the point of me explaining that is the way that we demonstrate that we are in a new covenant. So the old covenant has been made obsolete. The old covenant, which was specifically for people of the nation of Israel, which I don't think applies to very many of us in here. So the second covenant, which we are now, what Romans 11 says, grafted in. So we were alienated, we were boxed out from God's covenantal blessings and promises until Jesus Christ came. That should, that should make a, the gospel very sweet in our ears. Because not only were we alienated and left to our own sin and degradation as Gentiles, but we didn't even know that we were missing out on anything. And so Romans 11, if you have time later today, it's a really really impactful chapter that uh, unpacks that further. So the way that we demonstrate as a body of believers today that we're in a new covenant is through baptism of believers and through the administration of communion. And so those are signs that point to what Jesus Christ did on the cross and what he'll do one day when he comes back and makes all things right. So I'm almost done with our history lesson. If you guys can hang in there with me. There are 
couple of very important differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that the Corinthian who was receiving this letter would have been armed with. So we want to be armed with the same information that they would have so we can properly understand the context of these verses. So one very important difference other than the fact that the Old Covenant was for just the physical nation of Israel and the New Covenant is for us, Jew and Gentile, is found in Hebrews, you guys don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 9, verse 12. Blood sacrifices used to exist. The um, nation of Israel would uh, sacrifice animals, um, goats, and calves for the forgiveness of sins. Well, Hebrews 9, 12 shows us that Jesus, once and for all, entered into the holy place, not by the blood of goats and calves, as was custom, but by his blood to be the ultimate sacrifice for our eternal redemption. The second difference in the Old Covenant and New Covenant is that there was a, a priesthood. So there was an office of priests that would represent the people before God. And some of you may be familiar uh, with how this works, but they would uh, sacrifice animals and then they would go into the Holy of Holies and ask for the forgiveness of the people's sin. Well, in the New Covenant, which we see in Hebrews 7, Jesus Christ comes and says, no longer is the office of priesthood limited by finite man, because you'd have a priest, he would serve as a priest, he would die, next priest would come in, and so on and so forth. Well, Hebrews says that we have an eternal priest whose priesthood never ends. And so you can see here that Jesus Christ has made right all of the defuncts of the Old Covenant. Finally, and then we're done on the Old Covenant, New Covenant stuff, I promise, is that there used to be a specific location for worship, and it was a temple. Well, you'd be surprised to know, in Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus is a greater tent not made by human hands. And in John chapter 4, he says that there's a time coming when people will worship in spirit and in truth, implying that it's not a physical location where you go and worship God, but that we worship him in all ways with our lives. And so Paul, throughout the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 10, draws these comparisons. He's going back and forth between these, what we call shadows and types. So he's referencing the Old Covenant and then referencing the New Covenant. And the Corinthian reader would have known what he was doing. So I want to specifically dive into 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. So if you guys will look there with me, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on who the end of the ages has come. The key phrase there is, but they were written down for our instruction. The first 10 verses, Paul goes back and forth between Old Covenant, Superior, New Covenant. So what can you and I today possibly pull for our instruction, for our growth, for our benefit from those verses? Well, I would submit to you that we can pull three things specifically from this text. Number one 
If you look at verse 13, Paul tells the Corinthian church, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And he goes on to finish the verse. So Paul is assuming here that the Corinthian church, they're going to be tempted. So number one is you and I will be tempted every day to believe something false or untrue about the character of God. We don't have to look very far in the book of Exodus to find how the Israelites really set the tone for disbelieving who God was. You know, he sends Moses, takes him out of this land, frees him from slavery, brings him into the wilderness. The first thing they say is, we're hungry. And so he brings down manna from heaven. So just for all you culinary arts fans, it's a thin, flaky thing that tastes like honey. And so they have manna upon manna, and then they complain about the manna. And so God says, okay, um, I'll send quail down. So I'm, I'm assuming uh, that Shanks family, there probably wasn't many vegetarians in the Israelite camp. But uh, so after quail, they say, we're thirsty. So God has Moses strike a rock and water comes out in the middle of the desert. Then he takes them to the land of, of uh, Canaan, which was the promised land, where he said there was a, a milk and honey that flowed. And they said, whoa, there's giants here. We couldn't possibly overtake the, the land, God. And so everyone from the original Exodus, other than Joshua and Caleb, were forbidden to enter the promised land. So every single point over the 40-year history and really the entire history of the nation of Israel, we see them doubt God's provision, God's character, God's nature, and God's love and commitment to them. So my question would then be, what ways do we do the same thing? What ways do we doubt God's provision, character, and nature in our own lives? And the, the difference is the Israelites were the guinea pigs, right? So they were God's first people. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of years of God's faithfulness to fall back on. But yet you and I both, every day, refuse to believe that God is who he says he is. So at the core of that, when we believe something false about God, we then elevate something else in God's rightful place, which is point number two. That we, you and I, are an incredibly idolatrous people, just like our forefathers, the Israelites. You know, the definition of idolatry is that anything that receives worship or is dependent upon other than God. There's an incredible story in uh, Exodus chapter 20, and it's, uh, we're back here at Mount Sinai. And before God calls Moses up, all the Israelites are gathered around Mount Sinai. And God, it says, comes down in fire and smoke and thunder. And the Israelites are scared. And so the Israelites look at Moses and say, Moses, you speak to us, but don't let God ever speak to us again or we will surely die. And so it's this really crazy picture of a healthy fear of the power 
of the might, of the holiness of God. So then Moses goes up to the mount, Mount Sinai, for 40 days to sit, as the Bible says, and talk with God as a friend would talk. (laughs) And he comes back down 40 days later, and the Israelites have constructed a golden calf. And they're already done with Yahweh, and they're on to, as they would think, bigger and better things, a golden calf. And so I'm reading this story, and in my mind, I'm, I really, I'm like, these guys are idiots. It's been 40 days. You saw fire, smoke, stuff started shaking. You can even give it 40 days, and you're back to idolizing something else. And then I, I guess it was the Holy Spirit convicting me in a way that Hebrews chapter 12 describes really perfectly. It says the Israelites rejected fire and smoke and idolized a golden calf. You and I reject a crucified Savior and thousands and thousands of years of church history that proclaim God's faithfulness. That makes us a lot worse because we're rejecting a real, risen Savior. You know, truthfully, um, a quote I read was pretty impactful for me. It was a, a dead theologian. His name is John Calvin. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. Every one of us, from our mother's womb, is an expert in inventing idols. We have heard and seen, and a lot of us have tasted the goodness of God in real tangible ways. But every day, not only do we believe false and inaccurate things about God's character and nature, but we then elevate anything we can get our hands on into God's rightful place, saying, give me life, give me hope, give me freedom, give me worth. I can't do it. And if the story for the Israelites or for us stopped there, we would be left to wallow in our own sin, disgust, and failures. But the story for the Israelites and for us doesn't end there. Point number three. Even in our temptation and our idolatry, We have a great hope. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. Jeremiah chapter 32. You guys don't have to turn there if you just listen. Starting in in verses 38. This is God through Jeremiah talking about what the promises of the new covenant are. And so it's as if God himself is speaking to us as to what his new covenant through Jesus Christ is to you and I. Verse 38 says, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them. 
I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. It is only in Christ that we have any hope. It is only in Christ that we can admit we are an incredibly idolatrous and temptuous people. It is only in Christ that we can admit that, see our shame, our guilt, and then see Christ's beauty. It is only in Christ that we can even resist temptation. It is only in Christ that we can flee idolatry. And it is only in Christ that we get anything other than what we deserve, which is eternal damnation. And the point of the old covenant for the Israelites, the new covenant for Jew and Gentiles, is to point to one person, and that is Jesus Christ and our need for him. So at the beginning of our time, we started talking about God's institution of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So it's pretty safe to say that God, for many reasons, likes making covenants. The difficulty when thinking about a covenant is that you have to be, when you're, when you're the recipient of a covenant. So when God makes a covenant with me, the only way that covenant works is if I'm assured that God can or will keep his end of the covenant. Because we see very clearly that you and I and our forefathers, the Israelites, we're covenant breakers. And it doesn't take very long. And so... At the risk of having Satan lie to any of us this morning, I want to read from God's word what the real characteristics and traits of the covenant-keeping God that we serve truly are. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, God will never leave us nor forsake us. Joshua 1.9 demands us to be strong and courageous because the Lord is with us wherever we go. Psalms 33, 4 says all his work is done in faithfulness. Psalm 36, 5 says his steadfast love extends to the heavens and his faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 86, 15 says that God is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. Psalm 145, the Lord is faithful in all his words, and kind in all of his works. And this may be my personal favorite. Psalm 37, 25 says explicitly, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken. 
I could go on and on and on, and the Bible is full of testaments to God's faithfulness, his love, his covenant-making, and his covenant-keeping love. But the point of all of this is I want our hearts, at least right now, to understand that God is a covenant maker and he's made an incredible covenant to do good to us, to love us, that we would be his people and he would be our God. To plant us in a land with all of his heart and soul. And Jeremiah 32 explains wonderfully God's commitment to us. And the Bible is full of it. But most importantly this morning, I want us to believe that God is not just a covenant maker, but he's a covenant keeper, even in our inability to keep our end of the bargain. Even right now, I'm positive that in the depths of my own soul, I'm believing false things about God. Even as I preach against it, I'm idolizing whatever. And you're probably doing the same thing. But even in that, we have a hope in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to wrap up. But I want to speak just for a second to um, those of us in here who are bound by this covenant with God, that we are in Christ. To the Christian, I want to say to you this morning that God is bound by his own character to never leave you nor forsake you. If God broke his end of the covenant to you, he would cease to be God. He is bound by his own character, his own nature, and his own words to fulfill his covenantal love and commitment to you. And so this morning, I hope, number one, that that frees you and I to take a deep breath of God's grace through Jesus. But number two, that it would push us to love God more deeply in everything that we do. And so maybe there are some of us in here or who will listen to this who are not in Christ. And to you, very candidly, none of God's covenantal commitment, blessings, or love are for you. If you are not in Christ, none of this is yours. You have no hope. God says that you are an enemy of him, that you are hostile in nature towards him. And that an eternal wrath, unbearable wrath awaits you. And so I would plead with you, would you trust him? Would you repent and believe, as Romans 10 says, and trust on the finished work of what Jesus Christ did for us and for you? I would beg you, if you do not know Christ, that you would trust in him and don't wait. You and I are certainly more foolish than we could ever imagine, more foolish than the Israelites, more sinful, more idolatrous. 
But even in that, God has extended to you and I an eternal, irreversible covenant that Philippians 1.5 says that Jesus will sustain and keep until he returns. So this morning, as uh, we wrap things up, I want us to be reminded of God's past faithfulness, of his current faithfulness, and of his promise to a future faithfulness for those of us who are found in Christ. And so we are literally, in a moment, going to drink of the cup of the new covenant. And for those who are known by Jesus and know him, that cup is for you. And so drink this morning of the cup of communion with a remembering heart for where you've come, from where God has brought you from, and by his blood where he keeps you, and that is in right standing with the Holy Father. So let me pray for us, and then we'll have a time to sit. And I know I certainly have things to repent from as we prepare our hearts for God's table. So pray with me, would you? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.